Get the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast, the Potpourri Edition, presented as always by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor, along with Rick Broering as we will take a look at local topics, some national topics, and a nutty story or two to go along with this podcast as we do each and every week. And Rick's the man that starts us off. Skinny, the Bengals drafted offensive tackle Jonah Williams with the first round pick in last week's draft. Tight end Drew Sample was in the second round. Linebacker Jermaine Pratt in the third. Quarterback Ryan Finley in the fourth round. Defensive tackle Ronell Wren was in the fourth. Center Michael Jordan was in the fifth. Running back Trayvon Williams was taken in the sixth. Linebacker Deshaun Davis was also in the sixth as was running back Rodney Anderson, and cornerback Jordan Brown was taken in the seventh. With you covering the draft in depth and being a Bengals insider, we're going to go with some rapid-fire draft questions for you. So here we go. All right, rapid-fire away. Did the Bengals make the right call with Jonah Williams by seemingly all accounts the top-rated lineman in the draft at number 11? No question. Once the Steelers traded up and took Devin Bush, that took, I think, the other option off the board. Um and I still don't know if they'd have taken Devin Bush as much as they really like Jonah Williams. And I think you could see as much as the next tackle that was taken, the next offensive line was another 10 picks down the road. So he was clearly, not just by the Bengals, but by the rest of the league, rated the top offensive lineman. And I think and we'll talk about some of the rest of the draft, but I think what you saw in a couple other pieces, they want to address offensive line slash running game. And they did that a little bit with the, with the tight end that we'll get into, too. Um yeah, I, look, whether he pans out or not, we we, we don't know. I mean, I, he, by all accounts, he should pan out. This Cedric Abue, he was the right pick at the time, but said did have a handful of red flags. This guy has none. I mean, none. Said had the red flags of the knee issue, uh, the red flag of a little bit of a, you know, not a big motor. This guy has has no question marks. And it allows you then to do a lot of things. It allows you to have a lot of flexibility along the offensive line. And look, if you want to do what, what Zach Taylor wants to do, and it's funny because when you look at that Sean McVay offense, everybody talks about Jared Goff. And the, it really started with Todd Gurley in the running game. When they established the run in a game, they do everything off the running game. And that's what the, the Bengals want to do. They want to establish Joe Mixon quickly, and then they want to do play action off of it. And you have to adjust, and um, it, it's really difficult if you can run the ball. But the first thing is you have to be able to run the ball consistently. I think they, they made that choice. Look, I, it's funny. I even heard it again this morning, uh, you know, the, the whole the whole concept of, of where Dwayne Haskins might have gone and who was on the board for him at, at 11. He was never, ever, and I told you that last, he was never a consideration for them. They just, they didn't rate him that highly, and they weren't taking a quarterback in that point. Period. End of story. And I know fans are going to hate it, especially if he does well in Washington, but that, that's, that was what they, that's where they stood. Yeah, and a lot of how I think Bengals fans, but also the rest of the NFL and media members look back on this pick, the Jenna Williams pick, will have a lot to do with what happened with Dwayne Haskins. Because if he does end up being a star, then a lot of people are probably going to look back and say the Bengals missed their chance, as we've seen in the past, going back to like the Achilles Smith draft, right. and, you know, Donovan McNabb, and I think two or three, Dante well, Culpepper. And, well, and all the all the, the picks the Saints were going to give them that year, too. Well, so, the Ricky yeah. Williams yeah. thing is just a whole other story. But I, I think, let me ask you this. Do you think Jonah Williams can come in, and is the goal to have him challenge Bobby Hart for a starting spot at ta- right tackle right away, or is it to play him as a backup at multiple I, spots? No, I or? think it's for him to play the left tackle spot and move Cordy Glenn either to left guard um, or to right tackle. And that may mean bye-bye for Clint Bowling. Um, so you think immediately he could be the anchor of this I offensive think that's, line, I think that's what they would like. Now, he does have the versatility. Let's just say he gets in and maybe he struggles a little bit at left tackle, but they see the skills that can make him a right tackle. I know fans hate this, and I'm not sure I agree with it. They like Bobby Hart. I'm just telling you, they like him. I, I don't... I, I can't see why or how, or but they, they like him. I mean, I, well, I, I could see how because every week, you know, when you get in there for Tuesday to watch film again, you get another Bobby Hart getting <laughs> blown up to laugh at video. See that they like him. Of course, it's I, I like this. If the season started tomorrow and you said who would be the offensive line, I think it would be Jonah Williams at left tackle, Cordy Glenn at left guard, um, Billy Price at center, John Miller, the free agent they signed from Buffalo at right guard, and Bobby Hart at right tackle. That would, that's who I think would be their five offensive linemen. Fair enough. Skinny, is there any way to defend the Drew Sample pick in the second round? There is. Um, there is for this reason. Look, I, I don't... I don't believe what they said that they didn't think they could get him come third round that they that they were afraid he'd be gone. I think two things: they didn't have any second round linebackers or any, any linebackers that were left rated as a second round pick. 
I, I think they, they did. I don't think they reached in their mind for this guy. Now, we can argue it, as I, I think I mentioned on Twitter, and I had him mocked. I had him mocked to the Bengals. I did. In I, the I'm, fifth I'm, round. In the fifth round. Yeah. And I was probably, if you look back on, on some of the things, if I had probably gone a little more in depth, I probably would have gone around sooner with him in yeah. the fourth round. Fourth round. Um, second round seems like a reach, but two things. He is rated, right or wrong, by Pro Football Focus, the best blocking tight end in this draft. All right, that's that's number one. That goes back to the whole first two picks. You got what you think is a road grader at left tackle and now a tight end that you can line up and help in the running game. Something they really don't. I mean, Tyler Eifert's not a blocker, and you're not going to ask him to be a blocker, right? Right. C.J. Uzama's not a great blocker. He's probably more of a receiver. So now you have a bona fide blocking tight end to help your running game. They think he was underutilized in the passing game, and that may be. The one thing I did read from, from a scouting report was that he does have good hands. Um, not a great route runner, not, a, not an accomplished route runner, but it's not like suddenly you're throwing to an extra offensive tackle. At least this guy can at least catch the well, ball. It seems like he has good speed, too. Yeah, like yeah. And, and I think that's, if you're asking me where do you defend it, I think it's there. I think, was it around early? Yeah, probably. Um, but if you didn't have any linebackers rated there, and you thought, look, third round, and third round to fifth round was kind of the sweet spot for linebackers. It really was, and we'll get into that because they drafted a linebacker in the third round. I, I, it goes back to they wanted to address how do we fix this running game. We have the back. We have the back that led the AFC in rushing last year despite the offensive line, in spite the fact that they couldn't throw the football when Andy Dalton and A.J. Green got, got hurt and Tyler Eifert got hurt. They still led the league in rushing. This guy did. We're going to give him even more, and I think that's where you defend the pick of him in the second round. Of Look, this guy is going to help us in immeasurable ways in the running game as a blocker. It won't be sexy. He may wind up the year with 25 catches for 216 yards and three touchdowns, and you're going to look as a tie go, that wasn't worth it. Might be worth it if you look and you see Joe Mixon run for 15, 63, and 16 touchdowns, and he would help that. I, I like identifying your guy, the guy that fits right. your system and what you want to do and where you think you need to take the, the football team in terms of your vision as a head coach. The The only problem is you cannot defend this pick because of the simple fact that at the very minimum, you could have taken him around later. At the very minimum. Yes. Probably two rounds later from what everyone seems to think, including yes. other NFL coaches, um, if, if you've read the analysis that's come out since the draft. And I think this is really where, because if you look at the different places that do write-ups, and there's so many of them now, the Bengals' grades are all over the place for this draft. Some people have them as high as an A. A yeah. Some people have them D something. Right. And it seems to hinge a lot on what people think of this Drew Sample pick, a tight end, in the second round. It wasn't one of the Bengals' biggest needs, although there is they needed some depth there, maybe. And, and, and they needed a legit block. I think the, the, the point that gets missed is they wanted a legit blocker. For the offense, look, if, if their offensive style is different... If it was going to be, we're going to drop back and throw 45 times a game and we're going to we're going to run off of our pass as opposed to pass off of our run, then I get it. But their whole thing is they want to run it and pass off of the run, and they think this guy helps. The one other part that, that I, get, I, I get why it gives you cause for pause is when the tight end coach said simply he is adequate in the passing game. You can't use the word adequate with a second-round pick. When I'm sorry. You're introducing you, the yeah, guy you just can't, sell You him. can't use adequate with that. That can't be the, the word you use. And I'm, I'm sure it's one of those ones, you know, James Casey's kind of a, new to this whole thing. And um, if, if he reflected on it, probably thought, man, I shouldn't have said adequate. That probably wasn't fair. I was just trying to be honest. Well, in that case, just don't say anything. that We think he's, he's underutilized or undervalued or um, that we can get more out of him. That, that just wasn't one of his role at Washington, which it wasn't. I mean, they didn't ask him to do that. They asked him to be a blocker primarily. Isn't that a bit of concern? If you're an NFL prospect that's going to go in the second, second round, round man. of the draft and your college team, he had 40, they didn't even use him, he had 46 more catches than you and me in college. Correct, and 25 of those came this past year. So, good. I, it's not, again, I think it was a guy that just in the offense in Washington, their whole thing too was run it, play action pass, try to hit home runs. And if that's the case, your tight end just is, he's an afterthought in the passing game. He just is. Um, his college coach thinks the world of him, thinks he's going to be a great NFL player. And I, I just go back to, that, I, I, get, I get I get because of where the grade was. But like I said, you asked how you defend it, and I'm trying to do it just because I didn't defend it on draft day just because right. using the word adequate, where I had him rated, where I had him being taken. Um but based on what they want to do, they identified we want a blocking tight end. And this guy is, the one part is he is at least rated from pro football focus, a fairly independent source that fans love, right? I mean, fans, fans love, love what, pro, pro football focus isn't always right, and it, it shouldn't be the be all end all, but fans love it. So if we're going to go by that standard, 
okay, I get it. I mean, he seems a lot like Reggie Kelly to me, who was a second-round pick. Now, Reggie Kelly had more receiving ability coming out of college, And then didn't have much receiving ability when he got to the NFL. Well, and right, that's why right. I say he seems right. a lot like him to me. In Look terms at you of pulling out Reggie set. Kelly. Well, I just think it's, it's, an, it's an apt comparison in terms of what you're going to be asking him to do, right. right? A great blocker who could be maybe even an all-pro level tight end at some point in his career as a mainly as a, a blocker. blocker. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. And Reggie Kelly was taken in the second round, I believe. But I think looking back, people would be like, hey, he's probably a little overvalued as a second right. rounder because he couldn't really catch. Um, so I, I, I think, again, I like the idea that they're going ahead and finding their guy and, and finding someone who fits what they want to do and in their system. But could, for once, the Bengals just not be the team that outsmarts the rest of the NFL? Can they, for I, once, not be the team that takes the guy on a huge reach way above where everyone else had him because they're so much smarter? The only thing I will say is this, is, is I believe, Jermaine Pratt was the third best linebacker in this draft. I, I it just everything I had read and I had mocked him in the third round, just the way that the, most of these fell, and they ended up getting him in the third round. We're going to talk about him in a second. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have made me mad if they had taken Jermaine Pratt in the second round and Drew Sample in the third round. And then you go, oh, okay, that that fits a little better. Right, yeah. so so that's the, that that is the thing, right? I, I mean, think they, sometimes you attach it, not you. I think we all attach it to just round selected. Well, I will admit, right here, I, I am definitely one of the reasons it bothered me that they took the tight end is because they had such a great need on the defensive side of the ball. So then, if you look at it, and this kind of brings up the next question, which is Jermaine Pratt, the linebacker they took in the third round out of North Carolina State. They had such a great need at that position. Yep. Is he going to be enough? Is a third-round guy going to be enough? Did they do enough to address that need in this draft? Uh, you, I think you need another draft, or you need you need something after June 1st when some guys get cut that maybe you add to it. But I would tell you this. If, if you went in this season before the draft started, I, I could tell you I could live with Nick Vigil being a starting linebacker and Preston Brown being a first-down middle linebacker. I can live with that. I, I I needed at least something else. Well, I think Jermaine Pratt is the something else. I think he, he steps in from day one and starts. He's a three-down linebacker. He's a former safety who's, who's gotten bigger. He was really productive this last year at NC State. They had changed schemes from 4-2-5, where he was a safety his first two years, to 4-3, where they walked him up to, to a linebacker spot. And they didn't do it in, like colleges sometimes do, take a 217-pound guy who was a safety and say, you're a linebacker. No, he's 240 pounds. He's legit 240. He can run. He can cover tight ends. That's his MO. Um, he's good in the run game. He, he can blitz. He doesn't. He's. I think he's really, really good. Uh, to me, he was the third best linebacker. I think they got the third best linebacker. I think he's a guy that can step in and start from day one. I, I know that, and I've, I wrote a column on it, you know, a couple months ago how they've flamed out on these third round linebackers, but they all had 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 red flags. I mean, Malik Jefferson has always been thought of as an elite athlete. He was a five star recruit out of high school, but his scouting report coming out was takes too many false steps, gets fooled too much by following the football. Guess what we saw in training camp last year? That's exactly what it was. Jermaine Pratt doesn't have that kind of red flag. I think Jermaine Pratt's whole thing is just hasn't played outside linebacker a ton because he was a former safety. And the fact that, you know, I... I think teams still pigeonhole these guys and go, yeah, I still need a linebacker who's 250 pounds. No, I need one that can run and cover. And if he can go attack the run game too, so much the better. I, I think this guy does it all. I I know I'm going on way on a limb, and that's that's just the way I do it. I think he's got a chance to be better than Devin Bush and Devin White. A chance. Well, and I don't think you're entirely alone on that. I think sort of the knocks on him are what you mentioned. He's raw, so he just doesn't have the body of work. But the one thing he had had a really productive last year. That's the one thing for me is is finally you got a chance to start every game, and he produced on a high level. I mean, what ten tackles for loss, six sacks, um, four or five pass break, just a hundred plus tackles. That's a lot. You had said last week that you thought Devin Bush and Devin White were the only two linebackers in this draft that were almost sure things to step in and be able to contribute from day Day one. Yep. Are you saying you feel Pratt was number three in the entire draft yes. after them? Yes. And then from yes, that standpoint, I know everybody had Mac Wilson. How far did he fall? A, a decent amount. A ton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with that being said, then you're, it kind of goes back to the point of okay, then if you say you got the third best linebacker in the entire draft around later than maybe you 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 know you, you went for the tight end in the second right. round and got your linebacker around later than everyone wanted you to select if, if the I'd linebacker. Have, if, I'd have, if I'd have flipped those, does everyone you feel a lot better about the draft? That's what I'm asking. I probably would say, yeah. I mean, be, and let's face it, we put so much stock on where a guy is drafted. If Jermaine Pratt, if you tell me he's a second rounder and he has the same exact stats in front of me and the same exact measurables and people have the same exact scouting reports on him, I'm going to go, great, love the pick. 
And then Drew Sample's a lot more... You, you can sell that to me a lot the easier in the third round. The way, because don't forget the Bengals traded back, too, in, in round two. If, if I mean, they, they were only 22 picks apart. So it wasn't like they were a full round apart. I know it's illogical, but I still hate the Drew Sample pick. I it get it. It still bothers me. I get it me, because... But you're right. This logic makes more sense. The round attached to Drew Sample is still second round. Yeah. That has to be a starting player, starting level player. I guess here's what I go back to then. Okay, so you can get Jermaine Pratt in the third round. Great. Well, then you can still maybe get your tight end in the fourth round because everyone had him from fourth to sixth. Get the guy well, who's a second round grade. That's because they had identified a fourth round quarterback. They had identified him, right? Yep. All right, let's move on to that one. Yeah, is Ryan Finley, the quarterback they took in the fourth round, legit competition for Andy Dalton, in your opinion? Yeah, not this year because they they keep making it. It was funny. I mean, they, they, literally the first thing Brian Callahan said after they'd taken Ryan Finley is he said, I want to make this clear that Andy Dalton's still our starting quarterback. I didn't think you took a guy in the fourth round to come in and start this year, Chief. I, I was pretty <laughs> safe that that, that wasn't going to happen. Look, they brought two quarterbacks in to Cincinnati for visits. And for those that don't know, you can't bring everybody in. You only get so number, so many number of visits total to bring guys in, guys that you identify. So it's not, not always first. You know, a lot of teams will bring in a chunk of first-rounders because you want to weed them out. But you also have to bring in other guys to see. So they brought him in. They brought a kid, uh, Jake Delgara, if I pronounce it right, from Central Connecticut State. And they actually are going to end up... Uh, it's not official yet. They will sign him as an undrafted free agent. They've already come to a deal. That probably won't come out till late next week when they get these guys in for physicals. Heard it here first. Please credit Skinny Podcast. <laughs> exactly right. Um, so they brought those two quarterbacks in to work them out. And, and Ryan Finley, a couple things. Just from a sheer product, he, he's got size is fine. Arm strength is fine. Um, very productive his last three years at NC State. 60% plus completion percentage. Um, threw for over 10,000 yards in three years. The only other NC State quarterback that did that was Phillip Rivers. So um, that's pretty good company that you're in right there. Uh, he uh, Anyway, they brought him in. And one of the things they like to do with quarterbacks is they put them up on the whiteboard and they try to throw things at them and, and then take a break and come back and say, okay, we went over this a while back. What do you think of this? Draw it up for us. Said he blurted it back out like that. And whether people think that's nonsense, I get it. I mean, I, it, it still makes you feel good if you're in the room watching a guy do it. Look, coaches want to trust guys. That's right. what right or wrong frame. They trust they, Look, Andy Dalton may never be the greatest quarterback ever. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. But coaches trust him, and there's just a big part of that. I think when Ryan Finley can come back, they, they did it. He apparently wowed him before they went to lunch. They went and took a break, came back and said, going to throw some stuff back at him again, see what he can remember and regurgitate off the top of his head. He nailed it. And that's where you go, okay, productive, got size. We're not really reaching a ton here. We think we think he's pretty good. I think he can be eventual starter in this league, not just taking him as a backup for now. Um, we can trust that he's going to know and get us in and out of the right stuff. I like the pick, and I think, obviously, Will Greer got taken late third round. I do think they liked Will Greer a lot. They did not bring him in for a visit, but I do think they liked him a lot, and I do wonder this. I didn't ask the question in this regard in the, in the press conference, but I did ask, hey, after after the day two was over, you know, you had some time there to take a breath and look. Did you, at that point, say, we're trading up to get Ryan Finley as soon as we can on day two? And they kind of intimated that, yeah, we, we had identified that guy, because remember, they traded up to take the second pick on, on day three. Right. Um, and I think it got to the point where, okay, look, Greer's gone. We really like Finley a lot. Let's not let him go by the wayside. They didn't have to give up. I mean, they had all those picks in the sixth round, and so they gave up some of that, gave up a spot in the fourth round and just switched spots. I, I like the pick. I don't, I don't know long-term what it'll be. I just I think he's got some upside. I'm not wowed by any of these other quarterbacks in the class, and maybe you might have got the best one in the fourth round. He, a lot of the scouting reports you read about him make him seem similar to Andy Dalton. And not only yeah. before the Bengals drafted him, but I heard uh, some guys that I, I was listening to from Pro Football Focus say before the draft even happened, their comparison for him right. was Andy Dalton. Um, the skill you can sets, do a lot worse. Their skill sets and their limitations are very similar. Right, and there are limitations. Does that make you feel good that the Bengals drafted a guy that's like Andy Dalton in the sense that, hey, he'll fit in, you don't have to change up what you're doing if you bring him in as a backup or you try to make the transition to him? Or, or do you look at it from the perspective of, what a waste. You should be bringing in the exact opposite. A guy yeah. with the big arm and can do all the things Andy Dalton can't. No, I, I I like it for the reason that it is a comparison to Andy Dalton. Because here's the other thing. Let's just say this year is a disaster and you're picking high in the draft again. Guess what you can go do? Get the Go get your franchise quarterback. quarterback. Yeah, right. You, can, what, still, you what, can still do that. What is the goal with taking a quarterback in this fourth round where you know he's not coming in to really challenge Andy Dalton right away for a starting spot? Is it the maybe you find a diamond in the rough that yes. could be your starter later yes. and for now maybe you have a backup that's competent? Yeah, I, I mean, it comes down to does he beat Jeff Driscoll out to be the backup, but I think he's got a real good chance to do that or becomes a third quarterback 
something along those lines if they choose to keep three, which many teams don't choose to keep three. They usually will try to sneak a guy through to the practice squad. I don't think you'll be able to do that with with Ryan Finley. So I think they'll either have to keep him on the 53 or he he is your backup quarterback from from day one. I mean, I again, for 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 quarterbacks coach Alex Van Pelt and Brian Callahan to talk so highly of what they thought of his intelligence level and and then the measurables because there are you can't just have a guy come in and be smart and not have measurables and some productivity he's got that yeah he's got some Andy Dalton like limitations but I'm just going to go back to you can do a lot worse than Andy Dalton this league at quarterback look at every team chase I mean, my god the Cardinals went back-to-back years chasing quarterbacks man and we still don't know as much as Kyler Murray might wow us we really don't know, do we? No. We don't. We don't. Look, Peyton Manning, you knew from day one that cat was going to be great. John Elway, you knew from day one that cat was going to be Andrew great. Andrew Luck. Yeah, you I just, mean, there's some guys you, you feel just great about. No. None of the quarterbacks in this draft felt None. that way. Not one None. of them. They all had major red flags, right. Correct. I would say. Correct. Yeah. Uh, skinny, the Bengals. Uh, I think went into day three with half the picks in the draft left. Um, they ended up Thank slipping God. it down a little bit for your sake, but yes. they, they still ended up with a bunch of different guys there on that third day. So my question for you is which day three pick has the best chance to make an impact? Uh, I mean, again, you've got quarterbacks, you've got defensive linemen, you've got defensive backs, you got two running backs. I mean, you've got a lot to choose from. Two, two guys. Michael Jordan from Ohio State is an offensive lineman. Um, Center is what he played. Center guard. State, he, right? he played last year. He replaced Billy. He started to guard his first two years with Billy Price there, and, and then Billy Price left, and so they moved him to center, kind of like they did with Billy Price. Billy Price started at guard when Pat Elfline was there. He left for the NFL, and they moved Billy Price to, to center. So he's got the versatility to play both. Um, Jim Turner made a point of saying, "Look." And he's right. On game day in the NFL, you only carry seven offensive linemen, maybe an eighth. But most teams carry seven. So you better not have a guy who his only role is he can only play guard or he can only play. you got to have some versatility. And he's made a point with Michael Jordan of, look, we think this kid could even get you through a game at tackle in a pinch. That's how versatile he is. A um, couple things. He started at Ohio State as a true freshman after enrolling early. Now think about that. At Ohio State... He was able to step in and start as a true freshman. He's only 20 years old. He's athletic as all get out. Um, He's huge. He can run. He can play at least two spots, if not a third. And you're not asking him to come in and start. You're asking him to compete to start. Um, Certainly maybe be one of the seven on game day. I I love the pick. I I love it. I know some people had panned it. Saw a couple of D grades, which I'm still trying to figure out. What did this guy not do in college that... You don't think translates to the NFL. I, 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 there's just so much upside with him. And then the other one that's the most interesting, the two running backs are really interesting because Travion Williams is smaller and Rodney Anderson's bigger. Travion Williams led the SEC in rushing, 1,700 yards. That's nothing to sneeze at, man. I, you know, look, you can do that sometimes schematically, sometimes in a league. You're in. You did that in the SEC. Wait, oh, wait a minute. You did that in the SEC West, which has Alabama and, and Auburn and LSU, those three D. You did that in that division, man, against that competition level. Kentucky's defense was one of the top really 10 in the country. They year. played Texas A&M. Yep. So he went through a gauntlet of teams uh, to play. Rodney Anderson, though, is the most interesting. He's had some injury history. Only we had one healthy season. A ton of injury history. A ton of injury. In fact, coming yeah. off a knee injury um, this past year that limited him to two games and honestly may even land him this year on the pup list and he may never see the light of day, which you may not need. You you may have your three running backs right now in Joe Mixon and Giovanni Bernard and Travion Williams right off the bat. And Rodney Anderson is a long-term long-term project, but he's, he's 220 pounds, which is bigger than Joe Mixon, bigger than any back they have. He catches the ball really, really well. Um, yeah, he came. He was in the same same uh, recruiting class as Joe Mixon. And after Joe left for the NFL after two, 2016, Rodney Anderson the next year rushed for over a thousand yards, rushed for a bunch of touchdowns, averaged six point two yards per carry. It was his only healthy season. Same recruiting class, yes, not draft class. No, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, same recruiting class as, as Joe Mixon. So he he intrigues me a lot. And then the cornerback, I don't know a lot about other than. He had a third-round grade from NFL.com. A third, now, whether that grade's erroneous or not, I don't know, but I'm getting a third-round grade in the seventh round for a guy who would, at probably as we sit here today, at best would be your fifth corner, maybe your sixth, and at least be in the, I'm good with that. Yeah, I mean, Rodney Anderson is really intriguing because you mentioned the injury history, and from all accounts, it seems like everyone seems to say, if he doesn't get injured, theoretically, he puts up, Pretty good numbers, and everyone has him as like a second round Correct. Correct. selection because Correct. of his measurables and and what he can bring. You mentioned his size and his size to speed ratio was off the charts for a running back. I mean, he looks the part. And let's face it, anymore, unless you're just an off the chart ridiculous talent, 
anything honestly above a second round pick for a, for a running back it's is silly. a waste. Yeah, it's a waste. Um, and sometimes even anything above a third round is a waste. And I say that because even though Mixon was a second round guy, Gio's a second round guy, and then they're both obviously Joe's a special talent, and Gio's a productive player when he's healthy. Other than that, I mean, yeah, you're getting a, a second or third round talent in the sixth round that the red flag is injury, and I get it, and he may never pan out, but look, you took a sixth round pick on him. I think you'll live with that, right? You'll live with that flyer. Yeah, I think it's always easy to be excited about those later picks because of, uh, you're not it's ex- all upside, but you're not expecting right? anything Correct. out of them, right? It's, yeah, I mean, it's it's guys that are kind of projects or that have upside, and, and usually scouts talk a little more favorably about them, too, because you know they're a long shot to make right. it. So you're just pointing out what they do well. Um, a guy that we didn't really talk much about that I am really, really intrigued by is Rennell Wren, yeah, I, defensive tackle. He felt like a reach to me, but the one thing he does have for an interior lineman is he's six foot five, And he went from 297 pounds, mostly a senior year, playing on the nose, which is a little undersized, to 317 by the time he went to the Senior Bowl, and he was really good at the Senior Bowl. And they say he's a coordinated athletic Correct. freak. Correct. He just was a guy that, that it, it took him literally three years to get on the field at, at Arizona State, which always makes me wonder, well, what the hell what happened? took yeah. so long. But when he did get on the field this past year, he was productive. Not great, but productive. You know, playing on the nose, how productive can you be, right? Right. Your, clock, um, your job is to clog. Yeah, you know, you got Geno Atkins alongside of you. It, 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 the very worst, you've got a rotational tackle that's going to compete with Andrew Billings and Ryan Glasgow and and be able to maybe spell some guys. At the best, you got a six foot five pocket pusher in the middle next to a another pocket pusher in the middle with hopefully some rush ends. Suddenly you've improved your pass rush because you got a guy that can push the middle. Well, I love the fact that one, he gets to learn from one of the guys who is at his peak. One of the best pocket pushers we the game seen. I mean, Gino for that two or three year period where he was really at his best, he was dominant. You know, even this last year, he, I thought he, he disappeared. I thought he disappeared at times. He still had ten sacks. No, he was which really, for an interior lineman still a ridiculous number. He's still really good, but I think you'll agree. That oh yeah, he's not quite no, that no two quite. or three year stretch no, that he he, was he at. disappeared for times this past year. Yeah, I love the fact that you one have him practicing and playing with that guy yep. every day as he's learning, but two. He gives you something a little different with all that height. That's those, the thing. Those other guys up front are shorter. Yes. Um, in, the, in the middle. Billings, you know? is, Billings, I believe, in doing this all the time at 6'1". Glasgow's yeah, six, 6'3", but he doesn't look 6'3". Yeah, Gino's three. short. Gino's 6'-foot-ish, 6'1"-ish. Yeah, he's not probably This guy's 6'5". This guy's 6'5". So in the middle of that, too, with with that pocket-pushing ability, the chance to just get some hands up and get in passing lanes. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, the, 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 he is intriguing. He's just one of those guys that I'm like, ah, oh, man, I just the, the productivity worries me a little bit with all that Definitely athleticism. A project. Um but I, I would I would say this. Geno Atkins was taken in one round. Y- you can find a fourth round quality tackle, right? And sometimes I think some of it's schematically that you see a guy you know, I was watching a game with Gino the other day, an old ESPN classic game, just flipping through and there he was. Oh my God, the team he was on that Georgia team was stupid. It, it had just it had fifteen NFL guys on it. But he was kind of invisible. I watched him rush the passer once, and he didn't really do a whole lot. He got kind of shoved around. So sometimes it's scheme. Sometimes you're just not fully there. I, I, I can, I can look. This guy's got some measurables and 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 that that length. I'm fourth round. I'm good with that. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to watch him just because I think I those too. guys can change you so much. <laughs> I do like what the defensive line coach called him, Mount Wren. I like was his it. nickname. Good I like old it. Mount Wren. All right, Skinny, let's switch gears here. Move to the Reds, who lost 4-3 to three in extra innings on Tuesday night to bring their record to 12-17 and 17 after the month of April. That puts them right among the teams with the worst starts to ever make the Major League Baseball playoffs. So mathematically, they're not exactly out of it at this point, but they're going to have to have an epic season the rest a, of the way. Yeah, you're going to have to have just a, a really good stretch or two to get yourself back in, in, in the fold. In the hunt for the playoffs. So let me ask you this. If you could choose one player to quote-unquote fix for the rest of the season, meaning they'll churn out career-type numbers for them, who would you choose right now on this team? Fix? Man. Yeah, and they could already be someone who's playing pretty well. I I, I know, I know. Who would you choose if you could say, guaranteed one guy will put up the best numbers they've ever had in their career, but numbers that would be on par for their best? Who would you choose? I'd go Jose Peraza. Okay. And and I, I, because I I do think that, I think what we saw from him last year was just scratching the surface, and I can't explain why... He's off to such a bad start at the plate. Uh, maybe he hit a home run and thought he was a power hitter because I've seen guys do that. That all of a sudden, early in the year after they're coming off, hey, I hit 14 last year, and early in the year I jacked one out. Hey, I'm a 25 home run guy. Willie Mays Hayes, and you change your swing. Willie Mays Hayes, exactly right. Guys occasionally do that, and I think Peraza at his best is a 
gap to gap guy that does have enough power and is still he's still maturing physically that he can just with natural ability be an 18 to 20 home run guy or honestly you give me the what you give me the year he had last year and a little bit extra as you kind of move up into your mid to late 20s I'm going to take that every day. I don't, I don't care think, if he hits 14, 15 home runs the rest of his career. Correct. I, I, he's the guy to me. I could say Puig, but Puig's just so goofy that there's going to be a stretch where he just hits 450 for three weeks, and you're like, where was, where is that? That's just been his mo in his career. He's so he. You can see why the Dodgers were willing to part ways with Yasiel Puig. He's just so immensely talented and so immensely frustrating when you watch his his approach at the plate is embarrassingly bad because I don't think he has an approach at the plate. Yeah, well, I really don't. Unfortunately, it feels like uh, most of this team is in that same boat yeah, with that, him. Uh, a lot uh, of guys struggle uh, with their approach at the plate. Yeah, I I I don't like their approach at the plate right now. I think, <laughs> I think it's mostly oh, just really? open whale. You don't like guys striking out at seemingly every at-bat? Dude, they have nine guys and you could stretch a tenth on pace to strike out a hundred times. I know that's today. I get I'm the old guy. That doesn't I'm, seem good. I'm lamenting strikeouts, but that's just terrible. That is awful. Who's the guy for you? I'm going to go Yasiel Puig. Yeah. And, and the reason I think that is because one, you've got to get this outfield hitting at some point. I mean, it's so bad right now. The other guys, I mean, yeah, Matt, Matt Kemp at one point was a star in this league, but I don't know him even He's on at the his, downside of it. He's yeah, on the back nine At this point, it. I don't think you can expect, even if he puts up great numbers. I know I said career numbers, but he's not going back to MVP Matt Kemp. He's going back to passable Matt Kemp. I think Yasiel Puig, if he caught fire, he still has all the potential right. in the world. He could still put up crazy numbers for a four-month stretch and carry you the rest of the way. If you get a guy like that in the middle of the lineup going, I feel like that would really help out a Joey Votto kind of help spur him on get some of those younger guys maybe hitting with you it's one of those sort of contagious things but it's also I think you some of the other stuff will fall into place you knew with some of these other younger guys and and some of the guys that were coming off injury and stuff like that that this year was going to take some time with the way things unfolded to start the season but now we're getting to the point where it's like okay those guys are going to start coming back but some of the other guys still aren't hitting. Correct. So, like, if you got a, a guy who has star capabilities, like Puig going in the middle of your lineup, I feel like some of those other things could fall into place to give you a chance to really make a run at this thing. And, again, I mean, I don't think – the problem I is their division I, is way too good. It, it, I, I just keep holding my breath thinking that, that there are enough guys who have done it before at the plate that can do it again. But, man, here we go. It's another week. It's another series. And maybe some of it is, honestly, the schedule's just been so brutal. I mean, you, you're trying to fix yourself um, going to play the Dodgers in a non-hitters park in L.A. You're trying to fix yourself going to New York in a non-hitters ballpark against that rotation. I'm not trying to make excuses, but it feels like they almost can't catch their breath of going, all right, we got a chance to feast this week to get ourselves back on track. It feels like they just they haven't gotten there. And again, I mean, you're a major league hitter. you got to face major league pitching and beat it. Right. But it just feels like they haven't been able to ever get things rolling. They'll have one game, and you're like, all right, that's yeah, like the Friday night game in St. Louis, right? Five home runs. All right, this is what the, yeah, this is what that team's capable of once every eight games. Yeah, and, and that's why I go back to. I think a lot of that stuff will fall into place. Guys will start playing more towards to their baseball card number. But Yeah, like Suarez. I don't need to fix Suarez. Suarez is going to be, when all said and done, Suarez is going to hit 285 with 30 homers and 108 RBIs. Yeah, I think all that stuff will fall into place, but you don't make a run this year without someone being special. And so, again, for me, Puig would be that's that guy fair. because he could be special, and you need it to have a chance. Yeah, and that being said, I don't think they have a chance. No, I mean, I think you're seeing Suarez hit second in the lineup with Votto hitting leadoff because you're thinking, all right, those two guys will at least work counts, get on base. You're still hitting Puig fourth despite the fact that he isn't doing much at the anything, plate because yeah. you have no other options. No, no one's doing anything. Except you might have an option. You might have an option. Well, uh, let's talk about that because Reds outfielder Scott Shebler is batting 135 with a 273 on base percentage, two home runs, 26 strikeouts Ooh. through 27 games. PremLB.com's Jonathan Mayo, Senzel is expected to be added to Cincinnati's roster when the team returns home Friday to face the San Francisco Giants. Skinny, have we seen the last of Scott Shebler as a regular for the Reds? Uh, I, I'd say we probably should have. Should, yeah. I, I've always thought Scott Shebler is perfectly placed playing right field and batting seventh against right-handers because he does have home run ability against righties. He's shown that the last couple years. He's not an everyday player. He doesn't hit lefties. Maybe center field is just too much to ask of him playing there defensively and then having to hit. Um, Chris Welsh has done such a good, good job of identifying the hole, which is people just pitching fastballs up and up in the zone to him. 
and he know. I, I guarantee it's not like he. Does. I, he seems like an earnest enough guy that he knows that he's working at it, and he still can't catch up to right. it. He still can't fix it. There's still a giant hole. He did have a nice at bat Sunday in St. Louis when they were down five nothing. Got that ground ball double down the line that scored the only two runs. And you're thinking, all right, maybe that gets him going, and it still hasn't gotten him going. I think when Nick Senzel comes up here, your everyday outfield is Nick Senzel in center, Jesse Winker in left, Yasiel Puig in right, and at best, Scott Shebler's a fourth outfielder. And maybe by then, it's Derek Dietrich, who I think should play a lot more than he's playing. I agree. And maybe by then, it's Philip Irvin, who maybe deserves a shot. And maybe by then, Matt Kemp is back and Scott Shebler's in Louisville. Maybe you need to send Scott Shebler. I hate to, maybe you need to send him to Louisville to get him right. Uh, and... You know, I mean, whether- he's always been a high strikeout guy, right? He's just he's a feast or famine kind of hitter. He will. Thing is, he's, he he has been able to take walks in the past because you've hit him lead off, and he's done an okay job hitting lead off in the past. But it's just, I'm telling you, he looks lost at the plate. Yeah, and I don't think this should be taken as an overreaction to a guy in an early season slump because guys slump for a month, they slump longer than that, and then they still come back. And again, they they hit to their average, and and he'll probably do that. And I think he's I don't know. Proven- he looks really lost. He looks awful right now. But guys, guys do that. From time to time, you know, they just keep turning the ball over and rolling it down to third base or striking out every at bat for a month straight. I mean, we we see that happen all the time in baseball. Jay Bruce. It doesn't mean they're done. And Scott Shebler is a guy where I think he's proven himself that he's a solid guy. If you ha- if you have to rely on him as one of your outfielders, like you said, like your third best outfielder out in right field, he's a passable guy. If you have to platoon him with someone else in your outfield, you feel pretty good about it. He's he's a guy that can get some things done for you. He'll even get hot for a stretch and, and, and hit some home runs for you and right. drive the ball a little bit. But the problem with him is he's proven himself too much early in his career to where he's going to be paid a certain amount of money going right. forward. And... He's not much better than X guy off your bench or off the scrap heap from free agency or young guy that you're trying to bring up. Like, there's always going to be someone else to play well, over Scott Shelby. I just it, don't think he'll ever have a role here again. Here could be your starting outfield next year and at the very least in 2021. Winker, Senzel, Taylor Trammell. Could be. Uh, Puig could still be in that mix if they decide to resign him. So where does Scott Shelbler fit in a mix like that? He doesn't. And, and I don't like, I'm not huge on Winker. I don't think he's. I do. I love, I th- he's much better than I. I thought he could be an on-base guy. He started to develop some pop and maybe to his detriment because maybe it's it's hurt the average. I think he's going to be a 380 to 400 on-base guy moving forward with. I always thought if you could get 15 homers out of him, I think he's a 25 home run guy. Well, and maybe I, I'm wrong, but I'm not saying you are, but I'm not like because infa- he, he didn't not, show it in the minors, right? I'm not infatuated with him. Um, Philip Irvin is another guy that I've heard people say will play someone with potential over Shevler. At least Irvin has potential. He's another guy that I don't know. He's really shown me anything. But, to make he given, me think, but, but have you ever given him an extended period of time like you've given Scott Shevler? Not at all. And and so that's I think that is the argument. And that was the point I was going to get to is that I'm not infatuated with these young guys coming up necessarily. Even Senzel to this point. He looks like he's going to be pretty good, but he hasn't exactly proven that he's going to be some dominant force at the major league level yet. Well, of course not, because he doesn't have a major league at bat yet. Right. Well, but I'm just saying, the way people talk about him, he's going to be a perennial all-star in center field for years to come. And I'm not saying like it's I'm all in on that, and Scott Shubler should be thrown to the wayside for that. It's just more about the fact of what you said. At least these other guys, you can say... We haven't given him a full shot right. yet. Let's see what the upside is there. With and him. look, you're not bringing Nick Senzel up to sit on your bench and be a, a, a eighth no. inning replacement. When he comes up, the night he comes up, I will almost make book that he is batting lead off, playing center field. And starting for an extended Correct. period of time. Correct. And it, it's nothing against Scott Shebler. Again, I mean, he's playing terribly. Maybe Scott Shebler platoons with Puig. But I, I think he has been a solid player, but I just don't think he has much of a career with the Reds going forward. To be That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. All right, Skinny, switching gears again. Ben Bolch of the LA Times published a very detailed backstory on UCLA's long search to replace Steve Alford with Mick Cronin as their head coach. The piece included insight into how close the Bruins came to hiring John Calipari, Rick Barnes, and Jamie Dixon, among others, before settling on Mick Cronin. What was your biggest takeaway from the LA Times story about UCLA's coaching search? It is fat. For those that didn't read it, it is fascinating. It's a it was a great great read. Especially, I thought the lead was outstanding because the lead basically said that they actually had the nameplate for Jamie Dixon on the door. Yeah, that's rough. I, I don't know if there's one. I know you're going to ask me one, so I have to give you one because that, that's the way we do this show. But I'm going to give you multiples. Yeah, go ahead. Right, the biggest one for me is obviously at least from UCLA's perspective of how close they felt they were to getting Calipari. 
I still don't believe that. I think that's more spin that on their part. I really do. Because, again, if you still look at the raw numbers they were going to offer, which was six years, 45 mil. I like the fact they were going to cater in what lunch. One what, team what, meal for the for, staff and the players. A month. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, I'll drop everything I'm doing, and I'll come out and take that job for sure. Chartered flights. Yeah, uh, which, he one, get, which he gets right now. $1.7 million for, for his staff, assistance. Which he gets probably more, more than, than that, that right sure. now. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I just don't know how they ever thought that deal was definitely going to lure him away, but I'll tell you why they probably thought that and why I don't think this reporting is wrong at all. I think the reporting's correct. No, no, I agree no, with you no, that no, I don't. You, no, he's the, the reporter didn't spin it. The UCLA guy spun it to say, I say we, we actually took him to believe that he was really interested in this. No, I, I and I agree with what you're it saying. It gets you saving face, Fred. Well, I think Calipari, too, if you remember... He had just lost in the tournament, Correct. and UK Whoa fans are losing and everything yep. else. And this is what he's a master at. Correct. Spinning, changing the narrative to put it back in his favor. Correct. So what do he do? Make him look like a hot commodity that said, you know what? I just spurned one of the next best jobs in college basketball to remain at UK for the rest of my life. So I believe that Calipari took multiple meetings with them. Oh, as no, it I be- no, I believe that. But I, I don't, don't believe think he ever, spin- No, I don't think he ever really thought about going. No, not a chance. Not for that offer, especially. No, that offer was less. Yeah. I mean, he's going to take less. I mean, there's so many others. I didn't realize how close they were to Rick Barnes. They obviously talked in depth to him that Rick Barnes basically said, I'll take it. Then his, his representatives go back and say, yeah, we want more. And they said, no, we're not. And then Rick Barnes, oh, yep, I'll still take what you were going to give me. And they went, nah, too late, see ya. How bad are the agents for these coaches? <laughs> because let's let's think about some of the agents in this situation. Jamie Dixon's agent thought that him going from TCU to UCLA was going to be the same situation in terms of the buyout as going from Pitt to TCU. Like, they Correct. were just going to wave it and be okay with it. I, I Pitt know. was running him out of town. Yes. TCU. What's him? Yeah, they're not trying to let him go. How, why did you think they were just going to, yeah, we'll come off that number. No problem. Well, then the other part, and I think this had already been reported before, Rick. You can correct me if I'm wrong, and you probably knew this. I didn't, I guess, until I read this. I, I must. I may have read it before. The fact that that when it came down to, to, to even uh, the buyout getting paid, if they'd have paid the buyout, that it's taxed as a gift and that Jamie Dixon still would have been on the hook for $4 million in tax money for the buyout. Yeah. No! So if you remember, I think it might have been the podcast we were doing with Chad Brendel. We had talked about the issue with the buyout, and we thought that when, when we were getting the, the reports from like UCLA insiders, they were saying that the, the way the wording was in Dixon's buyout, specifically with TCU, was that he has to pay the buyout. Right. So UCLA would have to give him money, and then it would be a gift. But it, in actuality, it was just California law, I guess, Correct. for taxes Correct. out there. If Correct. You, you get a buyout, it's, it's considered, considered a gift. gift. And so, I mean, that, yeah, it was going to be $4 million out of his own pocket, and they couldn't make that work in addition to paying the buyout and a salary. But to me, I mean, the biggest thing was being in this city, knowing Mick Cronin, the way he carries himself, the ego he has, the way he talks. He was willing to wait. For him to tell UCLA he was willing to wait as they pursued the other top options, and he'd still be interested in the job says that we were exactly right about what we were hearing all along, which is that he wasn't negotiating to go back to UC and, and trying to get a deal done with Mike Bone. That, that he was had the been fall, out since the fall. That was the fallback plan yeah. to go back to UC. Yeah, but he had no interest in it. Right. He was trying to get out. And you know what? I bet he would have looked at other jobs that came open along the way after that, too, had it, had yeah, it come down I, to that. I think for him, the willing to wait was, look, if I'm your 14th choice and you're still going to do this, I'll do it. If not, okay, I, I've still got a job at Cincinnati. I'll go back and do this for another year and grind my way through it and Throw my name back in the hat next year. I think that's exactly where he was with with the whole situation. And maybe it was that, look, Mike Bone was ready for his own guy. Um, The the fact that they couldn't pay him. We've talked about they they couldn't pay him more. Um, And I don't blame Mick. I really don't. I mean, I I, I think for him it was a win-win. The win of either I'm going to get the UCLA job, whether it's by default or not, I'm still going to get the UCLA job if, if all these things fall into place. If not... I can, I'm still back in my hometown coaching my hometown team. I'll live with that, and I'll I'll go back on the road and find something next year. I don't. I I think he played it right too. I'll be honest with you. I do. I, you know, I could argue that he could have maybe held out for more, but maybe not. I yeah. I mean, getting to coach at UCLA is still a great opportunity. You yes, can, you can talk about braggadocio and ego and all that stuff, but when it comes down to it, it's you're still, still going to take that job. It, look, that, that's, I'm. I don't fault it. Look, if you want to tell me I'm your 14th choice and I'm your third choice still in line and I already have a job that I'm maybe not overly gung-ho about, but I'm still satisfied enough to get up every morning and go do it, I'm going to sit there and go, sure, you know what, if you come back to me in two weeks and give me that offer, which is going to make me more money, even if it's only $100,000 a year when you break it all down, but you're going to give me more money to go do an iconic job that's going to be something different, a breath of fresh air for me, all of those things, 
yeah, if you want to come back to me as whatever choice, I'm good with that. And if not, I'm okay where I'm at. Not a, not a lot of people came out of that story looking great. No, um, no. Which fan base should be most mad, in your opinion? UCLA's. You, you think so? I, I think, UCLA's. I'll tell you one that I think might be even more mad because at the end of the day, I feel like if you're UCLA. It's like, what's the difference between Mick Cronin and Jamie Dixon? Because they keep no, no. I think the thing for me is is how they keep botching this for them. Of, of I, and I mean, Mick's not botched. That's not fair. But just it feels like they don't have whatever. They always shoot pie in the sky because we're still UCLA. No, you're not. Well, that's the problem though. Their fan base wants that. So UCLA's fan base isn't mad that they offered. Like, what about Jay Wright? Jay Wright gets offered double their salary, doesn't even want to listen at all. <laughs> yeah. Which is, by the way, I think if you're asking me which fan base feels Nova's? Good, feels the best, Villanova, right? That Jay, Jay Wright didn't even Did listen at the idea blink? of doubling his salary. I mean, no one is more firmly entrenched in their job than him. I mean, not even Mark Few, I think, at this point. I think Jay Wright is I don't know, at man. Villanova until the day he retires or dies. Mark Few might be able to commit a Class C felony and still keep his job at Gonzaga. I mean, I would say the same thing about Jay Wright. All right, fair enough. He's won two national titles. No, that's true. That's a I good mean, call. J- Villanova is not getting rid of Jay Wright for anything, and he doesn't seem to have any interest in leaving no matter what. He's going to get paid. So, uh, so, so, right, so, which fan base do you think should be the maddest? Tennessee, because really? Rick Barnes was will, was basically after the run he just Took made, the job was going to take the job there, and then went back and was like, eh, actually, what about his agent saying, no, go ahead? He wanted the UCLA job, was going to take, it, and this dumbass agent tried goes, to get a little more. Go squeeze a little more out of him. We can rake them over the coals. They're reeling right now. They have no <laughs> idea what they're going to do. They need you. And then Rick Barnes is like, no, no, I really, I'll take the other. You got no, the other offer's good. That's nah, off the table now. That buddy. was that might have been my favorite yeah. line of it, other than Mick saying he would wait uh, for other right. options. Rick Barnes coming back after his agent told him to ask for more money. UCLA pulled out of the deal, and then he came back and said, no, I'll accept your original offer. And they were like, no, buddy. Yep, Sorry, right. you Sorry. had your chance. Yep. We don't like you. Yeah, I don't know. I think if you're Tennessee, you, you realize what that job is, right? If you're a Tennessee fan. I mean, it's not like they've, they've, they've been a consistent national power. Yeah, but here's the thing. You got Rick Barnes back. Like, UK fans are like, oh, Cal signed on to stay with us lifetime. Because um, you know because you know Cal's so full of crap that he just played the game. You know that as a kid. Even the most ardent Cal fan knows Cal just played the game. Well, right, but there was no but there was no like, oh, he actually wanted the UCLA Correct. job, right? Correct. Jamie Dixon, TCU fans, that probably stinks, but at the same time, but you, you understand know your TCU, yes. you just it, played in the NIT. Well, it's like, not just that. It's knowing that Jamie Dixon's from that area, kind of wants to go back home. It is an iconic job, right or wrong. Right. Yeah, right. And you know you were able to keep him with your buyout. You think UC fans shouldn't be a little angry I think, the way it played out see i think uc fans would be very angry after reading this except for the fact that in some ways i think this probably um it really sort of gives you a little more closure that okay that relationship between mick and mike bone really was fractured it wasn't working out mick really didn't love this city and this job the way he pretended to at different times oh, i do think he did see, I, but i, I think mean, whatever relationship like that's fractured you're dude, ready man I, okay but just leaving the way he did and having no interest in coming back i i don't think this was a hard decision for him at all so i think for uc fans it gives you a little closure plus for uc fans you're moving on You've got the next guy. They're excited about John Brandon. Yeah. Like I think they're okay with this at this point, even if that that is a little tough to read. For Tennessee fans, though, Rick Barnes is still coming back, and you know he wants out and, right you know, now. I, hey, I think they got a pretty good girl. I'll stick with him until their eligibility runs out, and then I'll look for the next best thing. Yeah, that extra line thrown in there yeah. about he was going willing to go back and accept the original offer after he tried to get more money. So it's like it wasn't just that he tried to get more money out of Tennessee. Right. He really wanted that job at UCLA yeah. and screwed it up. Yep. Correct. It was. It was a really. I'll tell you. It was an interesting piece. I, I really. Some of those things I scoff at, but I thought the guy did a really good job reporting it. Like I said, the only thing that I I balk at is UCLA's stance of how committed Calipari was to wanting the job. I don't buy it for an instant. Yep. Skinner, let's go to NBA. We're at the NBA playoffs. We've reached the conference semifinals in the East. The Bucks are playing the Celtics, and the 76ers are playing the Raptors. In the West, the Nuggets are playing the Blazers, and the Rockets are playing the Warriors. That last matchup features two of the game's premier stars in Steph Curry and James Harden, who are essentially the poster boys for the evolution of today's game and the huge emphasis on three-point shooting. During the 2018-19 regular season, NBA shooters made 27,955 three-point shots, which is more than they made during the entire 1980s, which was 23,871 shots. So over 4,000 more three-pointers were made this year than an entire decade Decade. during the 80s. Do you think the NBA's obsession with the three-point shot is a problem? And how would you change the game with regards to the three-point arc? Two great questions. Um, I do think it's a problem. But I also think this. 
guys shoot it so well that you're stupid not to exploit it. I mean, if you're, if you're a coach, you're stupid not to exploit that ability to do that and stretch the defense. They figured out the math. The Correct. math is simple. Correct. And yeah, it's the efficiency of it. Look, it used to be the math of it was if you could shoot 33% from three, it's the same as shoot. It, it makes the 17 point, 17, excuse me, the 17 foot jump shot irrelevant because you're probably going to make that shot contested 50% of the time. This was a little over 50% of the time. And now that these guys are shooting it at some, sometimes 40% plus, the math clearly dictates that's the shot to take. And the other part is because it stretches the defense, it creates driving lanes and driving opportunities. So it becomes a three-point shot or a layup dunk contest. I think it's ruined the beauty of the game, which is five guys playing together. I do I do think that. But I, look, I get it. If, if, if you've done the math on it and you're going to have a chance to exploit it, you are stupid not to exploit it. I, I, I really believe that. As far as the other part, how do you change it? I don't know. Do you keep moving it back? I mean, you can say that, but somebody's going to, I mean, guys are just going to start going further back and working on that and coming to the ability to make that. Do you move it back to 30 feet? I mean, honestly, do you? I mean, Damian Lillard's willing to shoot it. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think there's a few interesting ideas that you could come up with. Let, let, first, though, addressing whether or not it's a problem. I will say, I love the this era of basketball where there's tons of ball movement. See, I, I kind of disagree with you that I don't, I don't think know. it's become a lot ball, of ball isolation. Movement with, uh, James Harden, is there a lot of ball movement with him? No, and but he's, he's a different thing. I'm going to address him in a okay. second. But I do like the fact that teams have put a huge emphasis on skill. Shooting and passing is a fun thing to watch. I enjoy that. I okay. like watching teams move the ball like the Warriors. I like watching them run interesting sets and flare screens and all things to free their shooters. I see a lot of point. pick and pops. Yeah, and I like that yeah. stuff. I think that's part of the game. I, I find all that to be fun. I mean, to me, isolating, you know, Iverson and Kobe going one-on-one or Jordan going one-on-one in the triangle or just throwing it into a seven-footer and letting them play out of the post until the end of the shot clock, I think this is more ball movement. It's a little more fun to watch. However, what we have eliminated is a lot of diversity in the game in terms of mid-range jump shooting. Um, also, and I'm telling you, you watch these guys. It's funny. You watch these guys shoot mid-range jumpers. They are freaking money. They're really good at it. I mean, I'm my goodness gracious. Oh, my God. You give those guys an open 15-footer, I swear they're making it 18 of 20 times. I, I, it is incredible to watch NBA-level talent shoot mid-range jump shots. They just don't because it's not worth it. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I, my guess is they don't make it at that high rate, except for the elite I don't know. guys it just, do. It just feels like, because every time I watch a guy shoot a mid-range jump shot in the NBA, bang, bang. I, I think they've the problem is they've sold out on Like, yes. they go too far on the numbers one way or the other. But the big, my biggest issue with what's happened to the game is we've completely eliminated, like, guys contesting at the rim. Guys driving, dunking, foul, that stuff. There's not near as much of that like there used to be. I miss well, some of that too is you're dunks. not playing seven-footers a lot. Well, if you are, they're not shot-blocking seven-footers, right? right? You're not, you don't have that guy in the lineup because that guy's a back-to-the-basket post guy on offense, and you don't do that anymore. Yeah, I mean, teams value more like the Jared Allen, the Anthony Davis, the long, lean right. shot blockers now that can run up and down the court. And, I mean, again, those guys are great to watch, but there's not as much con- getting you know guys driving, trying to dunk on each other and contesting at the rim. And, again, there's just – it feels like so much of the game – I think Pop put it perfect. So much of the game relies – upon three-point shooting. And Pop said, you know, there's no basketball anymore. There's no beauty in it. Now you look at a stat sheet after a game, and the first thing you look at is the threes. If you made threes and the other team didn't, you win. You don't even look at the rebounds or the turnovers or how much transition D was involved. You don't even care. That's my biggest issue is that's what I feel like with covering college basketball anymore. When I'm trying to explain things to fans, it's like, so many games, it feels like, well, you're not going to win the game when you only have three twenty one, right? Yeah. Going, yeah. The other team made 15 threes. You're not going to beat them on that type of night. And you, it feels like so much of it is, it is a make or miss sport, that's like but a, it's that's too like a, much of it now. Right. It's There's like nothing game, else involved. Might as well just line them up and play a game of horse. So I, Let's play a game of around. How about we settle things with a game of around, the good old game of around the world? Well, and I love that game. The NBA has always been. Where would you chance around the world? How <laughs> far? Always, into, always chance. I've never not e- chanced it. Even if you get to like the, the last. The very last layup, I'll chance it. Ooh, wow. I'll chance it every single time. If you don't chance it around to, I, the world, I'm it's like to, taking pitches and slow pitch I'm, softball. I'm have to play you're you for, a loser. I'm have to play you for money in around the world. You're then. a loser if you money. If you don't play for money in around the world, world. sure. All right, all right. <laughs> we only do six pack bets on this. Okay, Twelve pack bets. That's true. Bets. That's a good call. That's yeah. a good, that's a good call. No, but I, I think I think he's right. It, it, it has become just a simple make or miss sport. I you know I watched a, a good chunk of the Celtics Bucks game uh, last night. We're doing this on a Wednesday morning. And for a while, Boston hung around because it was making pick-and-pop jump shots. And then it stopped, and the game got away from them. And it was like, what, what did you not do right other than you stopped making shots? 
the and the other team started making shots. The NBA has always been really good at changing the rules. Even the three point, it, like people act like three point line is you got to keep it the same because you're a traditionalist or whatever. It's like three point line didn't even used to exist. It's been changed multiple times since it did exist. It's been moved in. It's been moved out. You've got the weird thing that we have the short corner yes. three now, which definitely needs to be eliminated. Yes. Um, so, 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 okay, so what do you do with the line? I do think you have to adjust it to make to value some other parts of the game again. Guys have gotten too proficient. The math suggests if they can make this shot at whatever clip it is, they're just going to value that and nothing else. So it's like, okay, you got to change that. And I think there are a few options. One that I've, I, got, I've got one I just thought of. One that I think is very interesting that I obviously didn't come up with. It's been thrown around a bunch over the last few years. And I think a lot of people think it's ridiculous. I don't know if I want to see it in the NBA, but I would love to see it in like an experimental league first and see how it goes. Make it like the home run wall in baseball. Each team gets to pick how they want the three-point line to be. You can put it at 40 feet. You can put it at 17 feet. You can make it jagged. You can do whatever you want. If you've got a guy that likes it from this spot, you put it closer in that spot. Can you, change it, can you change it year to year depending on your roster? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, you can draw a new one every year. Because the only thing with ballparks is you you know, you know tailor your team back in the day to your ballpark, right? But you can't change your ballpark every year. You might be able to move your fences a little bit, but you really can't change the dimensions of your ballpark every year. No, but... This you could on a court, though. I think you'd have to keep it for the whole year like that. What about you this? You change it once a year. What about this? What if you set it out to 27 feet but didn't include the corners? That it just went around to the sideline and stopped it like a wingish, a wingish three with no corner. You can't shoot a corner three. Well, why not? Why not just take the arc to the corner and just give them a tiny little corner? If they step out of bounds, they step out of bounds. Like that sucks. <laughs> you gotta stay in the corner on your tiptoes. No, okay. no. I mean, you can fit your feet in. There. I know what you're saying. They just gave them a bunch of extra just, room when they. I'm saying the no. I'm saying let's let's just you, you got to shoot it from straight out front. No, I have no, no. I don't like that because I want the floor spacing of being able to be in the corner. I just don't want it to be a much easier shot. Okay. Right now, teams literally just stick two guys in each corner Dude, and they don't move. Two guys in each corner, they two guys in each wing, move. and nobody moves. Yeah, and then that—that's especially if you're watching the Rockets. I mean, Ugh. James Harden is immensely talented. And look, Mike D'Antoni is really a good offensive coach. He's I want people—I want coach. people to understand that he's taking advantage he, of what he can give. Exactly them. right. That's exactly it. But watching James Harden just either shoot step back threes, which is impressive, or get fouled, draw, try to draw fouls every possession boring. is hard to watch, even though he's really good. Yeah. Um, so actually, the 27 number you nailed, I think it's like 27 and a half feet is right where the percentage drops down to about 33% for NBA players this year. So if you could, that's what I think you do. You drop, you scoot out to right about where it becomes a one point per yeah, shot, and look, shot again. Analytically, you can easily figure that out. Oh, they, they have it measured out for how many okay. shots were attempted from yeah. every little right. centimeter right. Year. They've got all those sport view cameras now all around the arena. Yeah, with all the quadrants. Yeah, correct. So that tw- you're actually right. It's like 27 and a half feet is right where it gets back to 33. Here's the thing. When the three-point shot was initially introduced, it was introduced in the old ABA back in the 60s when they when they came in. It was it was the only reason they put it in was A, to add a different dimension to the NBA, but also it was kind of a late-game catch-up. Yeah, so you didn't get blown out. Yeah. You, you know, you if you were you were getting blown out, you could, you could get come down and jack and up some threes. Right. And then as it's evolved, as you mentioned, in the 80s, teams didn't really use it as a weapon. It was no, it, it was wasn't. there, and you you maybe had Steve Kerr or B.J. Armstrong or a guy. Every team had a couple of guys. It was guy. the equivalent of going in your two-minute offense. Correct. It was throwing yes. the ball downfield a bunch. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And then, to the like I said, I don't blame teams. I want that to be clear. I don't blame teams for using it. No. I, I, you're stupid. I would do the same thing. You're stupid if you don't. I mean, as a a high school coach, I'd rather be able to run something inside the three-point line all the time, but I don't have that type of player. I have five guards, so what am I going to do? I'm going to spread you out and jack up threes. I... It's my best option. I get it. And my line's shorter than that line. Right. I get it. So I, I think you, you I think moving it back to about twenty seven feet would be perfect. You do that for however many years. Heck, I think you could do this every year. You could move it back every single year. Incrementally. And, and just say every year we're gonna go with whatever the stats suggest, yep. whatever thirty three point three percent is until you find the sweet spot, whatever it is. I think you just keep adjusting every year. You say we're going analytics. Okay, so every so, year whatever thirty three point okay. three is, so, it goes to that for the next so year. So when we go below that number at twenty eight feet six inches, we move it to twenty eight feet four inches, right? The next year we move it in a little bit. I think we you gotta go by, keep finding the sweet spot. Yeah, I think that's exactly what you do. I like if, that. If you shoot I like that. Yeah, if it's twenty six feet one year the next year, it's, that's where it goes. The next year, if they shoot it at 33.3% from 28.5, that's, that's where, where it is. goes. I, I like I that. I think it would be awesome to do that. Right, but if you b- go below 33% at 28.5, you move it in a little bit the next year? Yeah, just, okay. that's right. You adjust it just, every year with I'm the analytics. With Wherever it says it's a one point per shot. And here's the funny thing. For those that are thinking, Pop, he's an old man. He's 70 years old. What does he know? Pop used the three. Pop uses the oh, three. He embraces he, as much as he anybody. He ain't stupid. Yeah. yeah, he ain't dumb. 
Yeah, he's just he's at the the only thing that really bothers me about it because I do like watching threes. I like the ball movement. I like playing faster in transition and the pace of play that it brings. But aside from the we don't have as many posterized dunks anymore as we used to, that bothers me. But also just the fact that he's absolutely right. The first thing you do after a game when you look at the box score is say how they shoot in threes, and that usually tells the whole story. That, that does. That's pretty much it. I know this isn't on your topic list, but the, the the whole James Harden controversy about him him and and fouls the way he shoots his jump shot. How do you how do you officiate that? How do you fix that? In your opinion? Yeah, I mean it, it's. I don't think there is a fix. I think they've already done it. Like it's a judgmental thing. Like you can't encroach his space. He's allowed to land and he at can't the same time. Yours. And the same time, he purposely kicks out and tries to draw contact. You, so you, it, you know my way. You know my way. Put him on his butt. Don't. Yeah, that's one way. That's uh-huh. put him on his butt. Or you know what? Instead of jumping at him, let him jump at you and run you over a couple of times. Maybe we'll call a charge on that. Yeah. Maybe un- they will. Unfortunately, I don't think they will. But here's the thing. He or stop jumping at a jump shooter from 30 feet. My thing my thing with James Harden is he can't complain about not getting calls because he and tries to cra- draw he, too many fouls. He, he did not really. He wasn't really in total complaint mode either. Well, he's, it was people I, around him. About 150 dinner. He couldn't see all that well during the game. Yeah. Guys were trying to end his career. There's a lot of excuses going around in Houston right now. There, I, there is that. I'm not here for it. I'll be honest. <laughs> All right, Skinny, let's end this. It's been a long one already. Let's end it with some Kentucky Derby picks. We've got the Derby coming up this weekend, and we're just going to go real simple here. I want your winner, okay, a long shot to, to have a chance, and a trifecta pick for the listeners at home. We've been off the betting for since football season or college basketball season ended. Let's get back into it here All right, some Kentucky Derby action. I saw this horse, Paul Daner Jr., Catherine Terrell from ESPN, and I went to Los Alamitos. Back in December, we were out there covering the Bengals, uh, Bengals Chargers game. The game was on a Sunday, on a Saturday afternoon. I'd never been to Los Al. Catherine's a huge horse racing fan. Paul likes it enough that we talked Paul into going. Beautiful afternoon. I mean, you're in L.A., man, in December, wearing it. shorts and a T-shirt, having a beer, watching horse racing. But they had a, a major two-year-old stakes race, the Cash Call Futur- Futurity, and Improbable was running that day. And she she's a bigger horse race fan probably than I am. Um, I'm more of a, a gambling fan than I am. She loves the sport itself. Right. And she said, she said, I said, do you want to go? She said, yeah, this horse improbable is running. I want to go see. She talks about horses as, as athletes. Yes, correct. Yeah. I talk about horses as, yeah, what number was that? Yeah, yeah, I, exactly. Oh, the seven. Yeah, I didn't have the seven. Anyway, so we went out and it was just an impressive win. Now the field wasn't great. Uh, it's a different, Los Alamitos is a different course the way it's it's structured. It's not a huge, it's really, a, a, it's, it, it, they have quarter horse racing, but they have a, a small thoroughbred meet there. And this was their thoroughbred meet but it was just an impressive win and he's followed it up by running pretty well since then the, he's i think he was made second choice on the morning line if i'm not mistaken maybe third choice i think he was six to one on the morning line i think he floats up to seven to one or eight to one just because how much money gets spread out um and for that it's funny eight to one second choice hell in some fields you get an eight to one's the longest shot on the board right um I'm going improbable to win it and maybe just because i saw him in person and i've kind of followed since then um i think omaha beach is raced out the the morning line favorite. I'm gonna. I don't think he hits the board. I'll probably be way wrong on that. But I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go improbable. Uh, my my trifecta box. I'll go improbable, maximum security, and Vacoma. Okay. There you go. All right. So who's your long shot? I think maximum security is what fifteen to one. Maybe. Am I right on that? I think. I think so. I don't have the odds up. Vacoma right might be a long shot. Maybe. Maybe. But I'll go maximum security. Okay. So it, we did not discuss this at all before doing it, but actually the winner I have is Improbable as well. There you go. So you uh, weren't even out there that day and you no. like Improbable. And, and Omaha Beach is the one that everyone seems to say is the monster and the the favorite has won the last seven in a row. So I know. And it's it, always it, tough it, when it, they... It, the cycles are interesting because it was forever where the post-time favorite was the jinx, right? Yeah. There, there was all those those things that couldn't happen. Now the cycle is... Is it feels like it's whoever you're talking about, whoever looks like the best horse has been the winner. So maybe we're in that cycle. I just, I feel like this breaks the cycle. All right. So my long shot is Code of Honor. I like Code of Honor. Yeah. So I had Code of Honor as my long shot. I think that's 15 to 1. And then the trifecta I'm rolling with is going to be Improbable, Omaha Beach, and Code of Honor. Yeah. And people go, oh, yeah, I took two of the top favorites. I'm telling you, you give me the two favorites and a fairly long shot in the Derby. That try comes back six hundred to eight hundred dollars yeah. for a buck. How, I'm just telling you. How do you pick trifectas? I mean, isn't that the way everyone does a trifecta for the most part? Is two favorites and a long shot? More yeah, or less? I'm usually a favorite on top. I'm, no, I'm usually a mid shot on top of a couple of long shots. Oh, I mean, then you're just going I'm, for I'm extreme swinging, money, swinging the home run. You're, you're I'm more of a pick three, pick four player, really. I, I'm, I'm, I'm more of that yeah, guy. I, I like 
I like that as it, well. It, it, so that way you, you can occasionally alive. Yeah. You, yeah, you can occasionally take the three to five shot in a race just because he's such a standout that you just you can't go against, but you also can't bet win money on. Right. But you get a couple twenty dollar horses around it, and suddenly that three to five shot for about eight bucks turns into. Fifty or sixty or seventy bucks. So that's yeah. I'm usually especially especially on Derby Day with the way the fields are. You get yourself a decent pick three play, decent pick four, and you got to probably spend a little bit of money. I mean, we're talking. You can get yourself into four and five figures on some of this stuff. Well, so what, the, a turf way, like on just like a Friday night. That that's my thing is the pick five. Just keep doing pick fives. Just keep you, you lose it like right back in. Right the back next, in the next five. Yeah. The, pro- the problem is though, you either got to go deep or just go very small and hope you hit the home run. Yeah, I mean that's the, and that's the thing is part that's a good part. And, the, and for for fifty cent base base bets, you can make you can put you know a two by two by four by five ticket together and look up and you got a forty dollar ticket with some decent prices on it. So yep. it's funny we both. Came to improbable. Yeah, now I, I feel bad. I know. <laughs> I didn't like that when you said it. I was like, man, that's that's not ideal. But I wasn't going to change. The bet's yep. already in. Got to go with there it. You go. Where does the Derby rank for you in terms of big sporting event events? It's it's one of my favorites to cover, and I certainly don't miss watching it. I mean, I, I mean, I, I you I, watch I, it. Oh, yeah, you do watch yeah, it. Yeah, correct. I love Oaks Day too. I got. I was fortunate when I worked at the the Cincinnati Post from '96 till I left in '03. I covered every Derby and every Oaks, and uh, spent basically the whole week at Churchill Downs leading up to it and just that was almost my favorite thing and i was covering college basketball i was covering kentucky back then um but that was just my favorite event to go cover i just enjoyed the week because i like horse racing i like being around there's always easy stories good stories all that stuff but yeah i mean the super bowl is still so far up there for everybody myself included um the ncaa tournament would be two to me the ncaa try see i don't put the ncaa championship in there i put the ncaa tournament well see i i'm not i'm not allowing that i'm saying it's got to be one event one game and because like obviously you would you would throw in some of these other things like NBA playoffs, MLB playoffs, whatever. Like all those things. Would MMA two sixty seven. <laughs> you know I'm not there. I'll go Super Bowl, NCA title game, game seven of a Stanley Cup hockey finals. Pretty good. Game sevens in hockey are really, really good. Yeah, and I'm not a hockey guy either. But game sevens. You get to that third period of a game seven that's tied. Holy cow, man! The tension of that's pretty good. Yeah, if we're gonna say we can guarantee a game seven, I would go. Um, it would definitely be NBA championship, Super Bowl, NBA playoff game seven. I think I've got the Kentucky Derby like right in there. It's in there. I just yeah. think it's 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 a, it's a great one off event. It's so quick. It it's like it's a lot of buzz around it leading and up I, to and it. And I grew up in an era when obviously there you know you didn't have all these games on. You know, you had the one game of the week and the Reds were on, you know, whatever, a few times and you didn't have all this college football, college basketball on. Yeah. I mean, the, the Derby was a huge event and the Indy 500 was a huge event. The Indy 500 has lost all of its luster. Yeah. I, it just, I, I don't even barely, I, I watch it just because I've watched it since I was a kid. The Derby, though, man, I'll watch until the day I die. That's the thing. I, almost everyone seems to watch it. Correct. There's very like Super Bowl is like that too. But and not, you can build a party, and you build a party around right. Whether it's you always have a party on a Saturday. Somebody, yeah, too. it's not a Sunday that, night. That's just you it. Got a Saturday whether, party. Whether you build a party at somebody's house, or you go to a Turfway or a Belterra Park and hang around with friends and, and watch, or even if you go down to the Derby and spend the weekend there, um, it just it, the whole party of it. Uh, I don't know. Have you been to an Indy Five Hundred party? No, never. I've, I don't, I've never been to an NCAA tournament championship game party. Never for the tournament. It's tur- funny. Not I, for the championship. Me neither. Because it's on a Monday night. Now, the Thursday and Friday, I'll usually try to find some buddies to go watch lunch, do lunch and meet them for beers later and yeah. make the days of it. And if you're saying that's like one event is like I those gotta, whole days, then I, yeah, it's you, obviously that. It's coming in the next few years. I'm spending a first weekend in Vegas. Me too. I, I, we'll we'll yeah. do it together. I've well, never been to Vegas. I, I, I've been to Vegas. I've not been for that. I have to go. Me too. I've or said hopefully times. by then, Turfway Park is a home for a... a gambling parlor as is, as is Jack Casino one of them bingo it yeah. sounds like Ohio's not far right. off and Indiana doesn't seem far off Agreed. Kentucky so may we, so we may spend one of the we, Vegas would still be it's still Vegas right it's Vegas it's still Vegas yeah alright Rick great stuff as always we'll be back next week to talk uh, local topics maybe some Nick Senzel up with the Reds by that point and some national topics of course as well for Rick Boring I'm Richard Skinner it's been the Skinny Podcast the Pope Edition, presented by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati <laughs>